Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A case begins at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of committing genocide. We debate the Irish response. The first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. Plus, would a European army help us become better peacekeepers? Uh, we discuss. And as the US presidential primaries near, Donald Trump appears in court for the closing day of his civil fraud trial. As you know, uh, we consider this an unconstitutional witch hunt. It's election interference at the highest level. It's a disgrace. It's in coordination with the White House and Joe Biden because he can't win a campaign fairly. Today marked the beginning of hearings on a case brought by South Africa accusing Israel of genocide at the International Court of Justice. The case includes references to the Israeli use of blanket bombing and the cutting off of food, water and medicine supplies to Gaza. My panel will discuss this in a moment, but first, Euronews Europe correspondent Shona Murray joins us live from The Hague. Thanks for being with us tonight, Shona. Um, you're at today's proceedings. Take us through South Africa's opening argument. Uh, key to it was no justification for Israel's actions and that Israel is breaking commitments under the UN Genocide Convention. Yeah, that's right, though. Obviously, uh, South, Africa, that South Africa condemned very much what Hamas had done on October 7th, but said that nothing could justify the breaches of the Genocide Convention, that genocide is taking place, but also genocidal harm and genocidal intent. And they referred to some of the statements we've heard from the likes of Yoav Gallant, the Israeli uh, defence minister, who said that he was going for uh, maximum damage rather than accuracy, that he's re released all restraint again from IDF soldiers in Gaza. Other language we'd heard from the, the likes of... Uh, Isaac Hertz, like the president of Israel, saying that there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. And it also referred to the extent of the situation there, that nowhere is safe. 23,000 people killed so far, 247 Palestinians uh, killed on a daily basis, 127 children every day, uh, including, uh, we heard from Blinny Negrawley, the Irish uh, King's Council, who uh, talked about the fact that on a daily basis, a child will have either one or both of their legs amputated, often without anaesthetics, because there's very limited supplies of medical uh, support coming into Gaza. That includes for women, she talked about also the violence uh, against reproductive rights, where women don't have access uh, to anaesthesia when it comes to C-sections. Um, it really was a searing uh, level of evidence against Israel. Um, in support of this case against the state. Um, and um, we'll hear from Israel, obviously, tomorrow. We will defend that. Uh, but essentially, they're just levelling this 
charge against Israel that it is a, um, a, that Gazans are enduring the heaviest bombing com campaign in the history of modern warfare. You mentioned Blinani Grawlick there. That was the Irish lawyer who was on South Africa's team. She was saying the reputation of international law hangs in the balance and she asserted that this was the first genocide in history being broadcast in real time. That's a key factor there. The evidence that we are seeing um, that is emerging from the region right now and how it will be used in this case. Well, that's right. And that specifically refers to the language that we've heard from senior Israeli ministers and backbenchers and others from the Knesset, because the point has been made that rarely is genocide something uh, that the uh, oppressor uh, would communicate. But this has been so uh, obvious um, that the Israelis have actually talked about what they're going to do. And then we, what we heard in the case today, what we saw was video evidence of soldiers uh, destroying towns and communities in Gaza, like the town of Shejahia, 50,000 homes destroyed. We saw Israeli soldiers dancing to the tune of some of the language used by Yoav Galant and others. Um, so that is hugely part of it, the evidence that's there. But you mentioned correctly that there is also a consensus that it's not just Israel at the court today, but international law and the future protection of the International Court of Justice. Because uh, what uh, Blinnick Raleigh did was outline some of the cases, in particular the Gambia case uh, against Myanmar, where the court initiated these provisional measures, measures in the interim to stop the killing pending a ruling on genocide. And she talked about the fact that the, the court gave interim rulings for all of those cases. So there had to be one against Israel, regardless of the fact that this is an extraordinary case. As we know, the Genocide Convention exists because of the murder of Jewish people um, in the Holocaust. And now Israel, the state of Jewish for Jewish people, finds itself at the court. Okay, they're going to be presenting their defence tomorrow. Uh, South Africa has preempted that, outlining exactly what they're likely to say there, haven't they? Well, they did in the fact that they mentioned that, for example, Hamas couldn't appear at the ICJ because it's not a state and this is an interstate court, but that Hamas uh, could appear at the International Criminal Court in The Hague also uh, for war crimes. Uh, and they also discussed the fact that while October 7th was a horrific terrorist attack against innocent civilians, um, it wouldn't and couldn't justify uh, the indiscriminate killing an ongoing maiming and destruction of Gaza, where it's uninhabitable, where the idea they were putting out was to actually remove uh, Palestinians from Gaza, Palestinian culture uh, from the fabric of Gaza. All right. OK, there we leave it. Israel have called the case, though, uh, Shona, one of the, the greatest shows of hypocrisy. Um, right. Are we likely, um, we're, we're likely to hear their defence tomorrow, but just briefly, that'll last tomorrow day, but we're, we're heading into next week then with more evidence and more arguments. Well, no, no, it's it, it's three hours today, three hours tomorrow for the Israelis. And like you said there, they've condemned uh, South Africa uh, for hip, 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 hypocrisy and for siding with Hamas. Uh, but then after that, the court will decide on whether to go ahead with these or order these interim measures. And what has been called for is a suspension of the military campaign in Israel and uh, better humanitarian access to people in Gaza. So we'll hear from Israel tomorrow. They have the exact same length of time as South Africa had today. Okay, Shona Murray joining us from The Hague. We do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, back home, opposition politicians have called on the government to join South Africa's case against Israel. Here to discuss this further is Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, People Before Profit TD Richard Boyd Barrett, 
independent TD Cahill Berry, and down the line joining us as lecturer in diplomatic studies at the University of Oxford, Jennifer Cassidy. Uh, you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Richard Boyd Barrett, we heard from Shona there outlining what was heard at The Hague. How do you assess South Africa's argument? Well, I agree completely with it. And uh, I brought, uh, on behalf of people before profit, a motion to the Dáil in November asking the Irish government to initiate these proceedings under the Genocide Convention and put forward much of the arguments that were put forward uh, today. And disgracefully, in my opinion, the Irish government voted against our motion in the Dáil. Uh, it was clear when I brought it up with Leo Varadkar in November, he didn't actually know what the Genocide Convention was. He didn't know the difference between the International Criminal Court and the International uh, Court of Justice. Uh, and I believe he misled the Dáil in November when he uh, suggested, because I, I asked him, why wouldn't Ireland initiate these proceedings? And he said that only parties directly to the conflict could take such proceedings. And you can check the Dáil record on that. Mm -hmm. So that was misleading the Dáil, misleading the public, in order to deflect, essentially, away from our responsibility, legal responsibility, as signatories to the Convention, to act to do anything to prevent what, in, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and I think we saw the evidence today, is clearly a genocidal assault on the people of Gaza, where there has been active incitement by the military and political leaders of Israel to that genocidal attack. Uh, Barry Ward, uh, what is your view on South Africa's case that was presented before the ICJ today? I think they're absolutely correct. Uh, I think what's going on is appalling and should be opposed. The question is not whether South Africa is right to bring the case or not. The question that Richard has raised is whether the government or the state of Ireland was right to join that case. And there's two reasons why I think the decision was made not to. The first is that the case is not stronger because Ireland joins it. It goes ahead anyway. You can see it went ahead today and it was <coughs> particularly powerful. It didn't need Ireland to add to it. But the second reason is that there are better things Ireland can do with its international diplomatic strength than join that case. Um, and in fact, I'm not sure how comfortable I would be with some of the cases, some of the countries that did join the case. But oh, what right. Ireland is doing... That, so, it, it's, yeah. very, it's very important, just, yeah. sorry, just to finish, because Ireland is, do, Ireland is perhaps the greatest ally that Palestine has in the European Union and is doing an awful lot of work at a diplomatic level for example, to achieve the recognition of the Palestinian state. Right. Much better to do that than to join a case that is not going to improve. Why would it not improve if there are interim measures, if interim measures are decided? No, no, sorry, I support the case and I support the interim measures. If Ireland joined the case or if Ireland didn't join the case, that is not but going your, to affect your the party, outcome. Your party, our government doesn't support the case. I do, the, well, I don't think the government has said that. They haven't joined the case, which is not the same thing. That's, and the, there, is, there is a diplomatic issue. OK, we issue have a list. Now, you it. tell yeah. me this. South Africa's case has been supported by the following states and international organisations. And there's a list that goes from Bangladesh, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Cuba. I could, you know, go down through them all. Well, Arab there's League. There's a number of countries there that I would, be, I would be very uncomfortable joining with. OK, but so the point it's is just not your about, discomfort at, no, 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 no. at, sorry, sorry, at those countries. Co 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 sorry, let me just be no, absolutely just, clear. No, just to clarify that, it's not with South Africa's case per se. No, it's not. It's just that if Ireland supported 
South Africa's case, then you're aligning... No, you... that's not the issue either. Oh, the right, point okay, that I'm is making it? is that Ireland is doing other things. So, for example, as I said, one of the major projects that's underway diplomatically from Ireland's point of view at the moment is to achieve recognition for the Palestinian state, which would be a hugely powerful move, but it involves brokering a deal with European Union states, many of whom are very uncomfortable with that notion. Now, if Ireland joined that case, it would absolutely hamstring our ability to bring countries on board, and it's a much greater achievement to, to get that recognition for Palestine how than it would be to how join the it, case. How would it just... Well, if, pa if Palestine was recognised as a state, it completely changes the dynamic. Because at the moment, it's okay. a territory that's occupied by But I mean, by how would our stance in this case... Because it's very so difficult to go to a country in Europe, for example, that is opposed to recognising yeah. Palestine. Having joined that case, you're then you're spending the diplomatic capital that you have. And, and I think that's to something that's totally Dip overlooked okay. by Okay, diplomatic capital. Um, Richard, what do you say to that? It's been something that's been levelled um, at your party in the Thaw before by Leo Varadkar saying, you know, there's diplomacy at play here. I just find this, to be honest, quite extraordinary. When we brought the motion in November, there were 14,000 Palestinians dead in Gaza, killed by Israel. Uh, today, there are approximately 25,000, maybe as many as 30,000. The fact that it's taken this long is because states like Ireland refused to take action to stop a genocide. Question. I mean, if, if, the, diplomatic the, niceties. You want to talk about misleading Diplomatic niceties. Do you think that if we do had not brought, come into it when you're talking you about a genocide? And this action, can I ask you this? let's just remember, no, this action is to stop. This action is to stop. This action is to stop an ongoing genocide that we're witnessing in front of our eyes and where we have seen three months of incitement by Israeli military and political leaders to carry on that genocide. We saw the evidence today, but that evidence was presented to the Dáil, most of it, okay. in November, and the Irish government did nothing. And Ireland That's and nice. other signatories... Right. There, there are two important Bottom issues. Line, Ireland, two, two important, Richard, hang on a second. ...have obligations. Two important issues are, firstly, the ICJ... Is it politically difficult for can Ireland I answer, to take Can a stand I just address here? the issue? There are two issues. Firstly, the ICJ has no mechanism whatsoever to enforce any ruling against Israel. They say to Israel, you must stop the violence, and they get ignored in the same way that Russia ignored them in terms of Ukraine. Second thing is, Richard seems to think that if Ireland had brought this case a month ago, everything would be fine now. Everything would have stopped. There's no basis for believing that, and it's naivety of the worst kind. At the same time that Richard is calling for the dismantlement of the Zionist state, which right. is not the answer um, either. Let's bring Dr Jennifer Casti in here, if, you, if you're with us. Um, what we heard from Barry Ward there is like, what's the point in Ireland, you know, joining with South Africa on this case because there, there's nothing to compel Israel to do anything. What would you say to that? And I mean, what is the enforcement or the, the, the rules within the ICJ that might um, prompt interim measures that will make a difference here potentially? Um, uh, just before I get to that, I would, would like to just uh, uh, come in on the point that I think 100% Ireland should be standing with the with South Africa. Not only should it be standing with it, um, it also should have been an initiator of it. There are there is no reason um, to not stand within against an ongoing brutal real time genocide being played out in front of our eyes, and it doesn't matter about. Our political standing. I was in the UN hall when Palestine gave their first bid for statehood, sitting beside Israel. This has been happening for many decades, and it's going to be continuing happening, along with the um, the votes in the Security Council. So that's a tiny issue compared to the people being slaughtered every day in Gaza. Now, moving moving on to the enforcement mechanism. Yes, Barry did bring up. Um, 
um, a, a good point here, but it still doesn't justify not standing with the court. Diplomatic signaling, diplomatic prowess, diplomatic power, that if this ruling goes with South Africa, yes, there's no official ruling uh, or enforcement rulings that, that the ICJ can give unless it is passed by the UN Security Council and therefore we go back into the into the uh, vacuum of the US veto. Um, but nevertheless, um, having a ruling of the intent of, uh, of genocide uh, for Israel against Palestine will be historic. And there's no reason, regardless of enforcement or diplomatic other efforts on the side, that Ireland should not be on that list standing with those countries. Barry, just to put it to you, um, and I'm wondering, you know, what your take is, like, you know, why wouldn't we, and you've, out, you've outlined why you believe it to be diplomatically dif difficult and other things you may do. We've had Barry Andrews, MEP, who's come out tonight saying, I support South Africa's brave and difficult decision to initiate proceedings at the ICJ, reading the 80-page submission um, and listening to the opening arguments. There's an answerable case. So if we're hearing this from, you know, government MEPs in Europe, are we, is the government unsure about where it stands on this? Like, it's not a united... Front. Firstly, I also stand with South Africa. I also support their case. I said the very first thing I said was that I hope that they succeed. But it is, there is a difference between me or any other politician saying I support this case and the state of Ireland joining the case. And I think one of the issues that Jennifer didn't address is that it doesn't substantiate the case any further. So you further. can all one by one, like I'm looking at Eamon Ryan saying something, you know... But, but that doesn't make the case Similar and uh, you can all personally... Vouch support. Yeah, but there is but a, you but, can't do but it. Persons don't appear before the ICJ states do. But what is important is that Ireland is standing with Gaza. Ireland is standing with Palestine and is doing more than probably any other European Union state to support them. Um, Cahill, your take on this, we've clearly heard two uh, different arguments um, on the matter. Where do you think Ireland should stand on this? Yeah, we, we can support the case for sure if we wish, but it's not going to affect the outcome of the, the hearing, you know. So Ireland's impact would be negligible. I mean, South Africa is well capable of advancing this case on their own. They don't need Ireland to, to hold their hand. What Ireland is doing, though, we do have about 500 troops in the Middle East at the moment, and our focus is actually preventing the regional conflict from spreading, and that's where Ireland has major impact. South Africa has no troops in the region, and they feel that their contribution would be to take this court case. I think Ireland can be focused elsewhere rather than the courtroom. Right, and so, we, we, so the focus should be on, on peacekeeping and <coughs> troops we, on the ground rather than taking a diplomatic stance. That, yes, but also why take um, a side in the courtroom? We should be supporting the court itself and focusing our energies on implementing the ruling that it's handed down in two to three weeks' time. Right, OK. Can, can I just, first of all, factually speaking, Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin have cast doubt on the question of genocide that Israel is... Uh, uh, so whatever Barry may say, okay. the government has has suggested... What has the Taoiseach is, said? The, the, the Taoiseach has said that it's a matter for the court to decide. No, that is not what the Taoiseach has said. Leo Varadkar said repeatedly that he thinks that genocide uh, is an excessive term for what Israel is doing, when in fact it, is a, it fits the textbook definition of what is set out as genocide in the Genocide Convention. And Michal Martin tonight again cast doubt on... Uh, the horror of the genocide that has been committed uh, by Israel in, in Gaza. So that's Let's firstly. And secondly, it, yeah, if, Ireland, if Ireland supported or initiated or joined this action, of course it would have a very significant impact in the European Union, uh, in particular 
where there's huge public uh, outcry about what Israel is doing, but many governments are sitting in their hands and doing nothing or worse, continuing All right. to support uh, Israel. Can I just, just go back on the definition of uh, genocide and what Leo Varadkar had to say on that, uh, Barry? Um, a genocide is defined, as you know, as a deliberate attempt to eliminate an entire population or a large part of it. I think we need to be careful about using words like that. Is he right in his definition of genocide? Well, he is right in his definition, but the preceding sentence, I think, in that is that he was saying that it is a matter for the international court to decide, and he is absolutely right in that. But if you can imagine, Richard said that, that joining the case would have a very substantial impact in the European Union. He's right about that, but it wouldn't be a good one. It would sideline Ireland diplomatically from the countries it's trying to convince to recognise Palestine to actually do something tangible. And as has been said, and I think it's very clear and undisputable, is that Ireland joining the case will not make the case stronger will not move it towards a greater achievement. So we're achievement. happy to, to watch from the Nobody's sidelines. Nobody's happy perhaps. about this. No, no, but to yeah. watch from the sidelines without stepping in to, we to actively... Absolutely we were absolutely November to do something and you refused Leo Varadkar was the first one to call out Israel in terms of All his right. actions. Jennifer, you want to come back in there if you're still with us? Yeah. Yeah, just to kind of uh, make that point succinct of, well, if we came in, it wouldn't mean anything, or if we came in, if it you know, we would bolster it. I fully stand by uh, uh, what Richard said and what many people are saying and calling Ireland rightfully out for. If every single country took that stance that, oh, well, our voice doesn't matter or we're not going to support that or South Africa decided not to do it. This is exactly how we have seen in history genocides, ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity. I've worked on the Khmer, Khmer Rouge tribunals. I've seen people convicted of genocide and crimes against humanity. And it's exactly for these very reasons of states having other issues and other facets to deal with and saying, no, other countries can deal with this. Yes, it mightn't bolster um, or win the case for South Africa, but countries standing by the sidelines when a genocide is taking place day by day, it, it is... This standing is by the sidelines. Like, Leo Varadkar was <clears> the <throat> first Western leader so to it, call it, out Israel. It, it, respectfully, if I could just finish. Um, I, I very much agree that we have been, been vocal. Uh, we have, as I said, I have sat beside Israel in, in the Irish seat, in the General Assembly. I know our diplomatic standing on this. And your point about getting recognition for um, Palestine as a statehood is valid and one that I have supported, you know, since being in the room in 2011. However, that is a long-term goal. And when we see people in real time, as the court said today, where genocide is being, it being committed, for me and my viewpoint and a lot of other diplomatic and international law scholars would say it's time to actually deal with the, the genocide. This is the urgent matter. We need to back it, even if it's not going to, as I said, make a significant difference. Our name needs to be there to show the support for the people of Palestine. And then we can go and work with them for statehood. Okay. Barry, do you want to respond to that Our briefly? Our name is there. Nobody is in any doubt about how Ireland feels about this conflict. And all you have to do to reinforce that Although in this particular is, case... All you have to do is to look at how Israel case, talks about uh, Just to about clarify, Ireland. on this particular yeah. case, we're not among the countries... We, no, but we... But, sorry, wait South a second. What, what Jennifer's talking about there was Ireland standing with Palestine. 
There is no doubt but that Ireland is standing with Palestine. And all you have to do is look at the way Israel talks about Ireland. The abuse that Israel gives Ireland yeah. diplomatically shows how much they resist what we have said and what we have led. Like countries in Europe have followed us yeah. in terms of criticising we, Israel. Uh, not not a sorry, Cahill, I just want to bring you Israel. in on this. Um, you, you, you thought that, you know, uh, that, that there, would be a negative, there would be a negative impact. Do you believe there would be a negative impact on the ground in peacekeeping matters and other issues? Yeah, well, I, I um, were we, were we to, to voice support with South Africa? And do you believe that there will be growing international pressure maybe for other countries to begin supporting South just, Africa? Just an interesting point for me is that it was South Africa that took the case. It wasn't an Arab country. Like some Arab countries would be sworn enemies of the Israelis, but they didn't initiate proceedings at all. And we have to ask ourselves the questions, why? And the question or the, the difficulty is, and it is a concern in Ireland as well, having speak, spoken to diplomatic circles, is it will take about three weeks, two to three weeks, for the court to hand down its judgment. And there is a concern in the short term that there will be a considerable escalation of hostilities both in Gaza, but also across the region. And that is the concern that has to be weighed up as well. And we can see what's going to happen in Yemen <coughs> most likely tonight uh, or tomorrow night. There is a risk of regional escalation. And that's really... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why people were so reticent about bringing this case in as the a result place. Of, as a result of this case being taken in in a, in a response to it, there was yes, the, that? and the risk is if there is a two to three week window before a, a court ruling is handed down, there's only two to three weeks remaining for the job to be finished, as some of the belligerents right. would say. Okay, I have, what, to, what, I have to be honest. What, I mean, what, what do you think about that? I, I find it an extraordinary argument. I mean, look at what we are witnessing. I mean, could it possibly? Richard, nobody's in favour of could it. He, but hold on a second. We have to act to stop it. We it's a massacre. We have acted. The, the Irish government or Western governments have not taken a single measure to sanction Israel okay. for its action. What you've said. Meanwhile, you're you're I, 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 yeah. just give me a second. Uh, always take the United States. <laughs> the United States. I didn't interrupt you once. <laughs> Uh, the United States have given active support, continue to arm uh, Israel in its genocidal uh, attack, and the European Union continues to give favoured trade status to Israel, uh, continue to give uh, do arms trade with Israel during this genocide, and, and Ireland and hasn't put a single sanction, not a single Ireland sanction, is not able uh, on to Israel. Put sanctions. That is Ireland, not true. That is that absolutely is true. true. Trade sanctions are a function of the European Union. You can put political as, as sanctions Ireland, on Ireland Israel. Ireland cannot do it. In the, okay, so political sanctions. So we do what you asked us before. Send back the Israeli ambassador, and then you have a situation where Irish citizens who are caught in this conflict have no diplomatic representation, have no consular assistance from Ireland. You cut your nose off to spite your face, Richard. And instead of just calling for everything to be done 
done because you want to get it done, actually look at the impact of that and what you can do in a positive way that's going to make an actual difference mm -hmm. rather than one that makes us all feel better. What you have done today has made no difference. Israel is, is killing okay, Palestinian yeah. countries have Daily followed us in terms of the criticism. Larry, can I ask, well. should there be uh, that interim ruling about, you know, yes. me measures? There should, but the danger... Be, the that, would be, that would be support. I, 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 I would love to see that happen, but the danger is that Israel will ignore it the same way that Russia did in relation to Ukraine. All right, okay. and where did you stand with that? Because... Well, that's the point, that, isn't it? No, I, I, there, was a, there was government support, obviously, for the, the case. Yes, but it's, it's, a, it's a different situation genocide. because there is no diplomatic solution being brokered by Ireland in the case of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Ireland also supported the case for the, in, the International Criminal Court in relation to Russia and Ukraine. It is a different situation. These things Why are not simple Mary? and straightforward. Why is it different? Because, Richard, you can't explain it in 10 words. They're both less. illegal occupations. They're, 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 I, both I illegal agree, invasions. I agree with that. Both massacres. But you have to see what you can do to achieve an actual, tangible result that will help the people People on the ground Israel okay. and not just make you feel ally, and that's why okay, you don't we are, want to do we're anything at a time, about it. We're out of time on that discussion for now. My thanks to Jennifer Cassidy, who joined us online. Uh, coming up after the break, we examine whether an EU army would be a force for peace. Welcome back. If we want to be peacekeepers in the world, we need a European military. That's what Italian Foreign Minister Antonio Tajani revealed in a recent interview. But Finnegal Senator Barry Ward, People Before Profit TD Richard Boyd Barrett and Independent TD Cahill Berry have stayed on with me to examine whether a European military could be on the horizon. Cahill Berry, what's your take on this? Um, he's aligning it to, you know, the, the, the greater peacekeeping cause and that a European military is the way of doing this. Yeah, look, he's entitled to his view, but I don't see an EU army on the horizon at all or even beyond the horizon. I mean, NATO has been around for 70 mm. years and it was established specifically for military reasons. That's not a single army. Um, so politically, it's not going to happen. And technically, it's not even possible to happen um, because having a military really is the ultimate expression of, of sovereignty. And if anything, it's going in the opposite direction. There seems to be a, a withdrawal from multilateral uh, type organisations are back towards the nation state. So I don't see an EU army uh, being, being... And what about the merit of an e EU army? There is certain merit to cooperation. So, for instance, um, the Garda Shikana are part of Europol. Mm. Um, we have our education system. They're part of Erasmus. We have um, the EU cross-border directive for the health services. But that doesn't mean our... Uh, police forces, our, our health services, our education services are the same entity. In, in fact, it doesn't mean it at all. So there is merit to actually cooperating on a case-by-case -case basis. And we actually did it in 2008. Um, Irish troops were sent as part of an EU force to Chad for the first year because the UN weren't ready. And after 12 months, the EU force then handed over to United Nations peacekeeping force. So that's been done 15 years ago on Irish... Uh, Has Irish it been done since? Um, not to my knowledge. Um, right. but it could very and why not? I guess the template is there. The situation probably hasn't presented itself. Okay. Maybe at a smaller level at, I mean, platoon or company strength, but certainly not at a, at a large level where uh, an EU force of about 400 troops went in first and then handed over oh. to a UN peacekeeping force thereafter. Um, what do you think of this, um, Richard? Because it's not just the Italian foreign minister calling for it. Um, it Eastern European bloc would support this. France is sceptical about having to rely on, on NATO. We do know that. You know, whether it's wishful thinking or otherwise, do you think that there's a general consensus maybe among some countries that this could be a good thing? 
I think there's an absolute clear agenda to drive Europe towards greater levels of militarization. And that's very, very clear when you look at the increases in military spending that have happened across Europe and the commitments that states have made under PESCO uh, to increase dramatically the level of military expenditure to build up the European uh, the battle groups to strengthen the alignment mm -hmm. with the NATO military alliance. And let's remember now in the context of Palestine, that is a military alliance dominated by the United States, Britain and the states that have backed Israel in this horror in uh, Gaza. Uh, and I think it is very seriously threatening Ireland's uh, neutrality uh, in that we are being dragged through the back door into uh, increasing militarization and into a closer relationship with NATO. And you only have to take the, the fact that we had NATO okay. commanders in Cork checking out our troops for uh, interoperability with NATO military forces. Uh, one of the arguments that people would say, look, we do need a greater, maybe European Euro Europeans working together on the issues when it comes to security and when it comes to defence, um, when there's, you know, talk about underground cables or, you know, the suspicious um, manoeuvres off the Irish coast, who's there to help us because of our own defence forces and, I suppose, a lack of resources in them? Well, again, I mean, I, honestly, I would point to the situation we're watching in real time in Palestine as an indication of uh, the problem with that drive towards militarisation. There's huge amounts of military uh, trade going back and forward between the European Union and uh, Israel. So we, we're supplying them with the weapons, we're buying weapons off Israel. How does that contribute to security or peace? If our objective, and particularly as a neutral country, should be security and peace in the world, the last thing you want to be doing is increasing militarization. You want to actually be arguing to move in the opposite direction. Okay. Uh, Barry Ward, what, what is your take when you heard that idea, um, maybe wishful thinking, as Cahill might say, but an idea nonetheless that might garner a bit of support for a, a Europe-wide army? It might, but not in, not in Ireland. And I... Bridges will never let the opportunity to see a conspiracy where there is none go by. When you talk about increased uh, spending on, on defence, for example, in Europe, it is also in the context of the fact that there is a significant war happening on our borders and many of the countries that are much closer to that are increasing their spending. Mm -hmm. He talks about the European Union trading in but weapons. Was that other... um, increase in spending already a agreed upon prior to the war in Ukraine in, on no, the no, it's in, but European it's Defence Fund? It's individual countries. Richard talked about the increase in defence spending in Europe. That is by individual countries. It is not the case. There is no European military force. There are cooperations and there Bad are alliances, absolutely. Are um, but the reality is Ireland is not a, part, a country that has any interest in going down that route. I absolutely reject this notion that we're being dragged in through the back door, whatever way you put it, into militarisation. We are a sovereign state. We make our own decisions. And in fact, the revision and the, the, uh, the examination of the triple lock is exactly an expression of that sovereignty because it'll be up to us to decide if we deploy troops abroad. But the most important thing is we will never do it offensively. Whenever we deploy troops aboard, and Ireland has such a long and proud history, and we have so many people in the Defence Forces who have done this country massive credit in terms of defence, um, in peacekeeping as Defence Forces abroad. That's what we want to be involved right. in. And I absolutely support the increase in spending of the Defence Forces for the defence of this country, as well as the okay. increased capacity. They would say it's a, it's a long time coming. I mean, we have, yeah. we, have, and they're right. we have ships that can't take to the seas because they're not manned. Mm -hmm. Cahill, you will know all about that. Um, where does that sit in the picture, I suppose, of calls for... 
uh, greater European cooperation? Should we look to what's happening in our own country first? Absolutely. And most military people who will be listening to this discussion now tonight, they'll be rolling their eyes to heaven going, here we go on, going on about this, this old chestnut, the EU army. And it's almost like it's a distraction. Let's not focus on investing in our own forces. Let's just have this theoretical discussion about a, a, a phantom army that's mm. going to be formed sometime in the future. We should be focusing on our own But forces. do we still need European help? So let's say disruption of undersea cables, Absolutely. those security threats. Do you believe that even with all the best resources given to our defence forces in this country, we will still need uh, European, European help. So, and, you know, it's been argued uh, NATO, NATO help. That, that's, that was one of the arguments, certainly, at the start of the war in Ukraine when there was all this talk of potentially, not potentially Ireland joining NATO, but it did become part of a conversation for a while, that why that might be a good thing. Yeah, so look, we should have a baseline capability ourselves. Every nation state has it. It's like running water in a house. You must have a, a certain mm. basic capability. But cooperation makes perfect sense as well. Absolutely. And we shouldn't be afraid of cooperation. Uh, as I said, the, the Garda Shikana are liaising with their colleagues and counterparts all across the European Union. There's no reason why our defence forces should, be, should, be, should not be doing exactly the same from a defence point of view as well. Yeah, would you agree with um, that, Richard, about our defence force spending? Or would you take another tack that you know, we, we shouldn't, because there is this talk about a plan, you know, to, to further resource and fund our defence forces. Oh, this, I, th I think we should is, pay, we should pay our military personnel properly, uh, because many of them are very, very badly paid, uh, some of them living in effective uh, poverty. And that's indeed, I think, one of the major reasons why mm. uh, the defence forces are having difficulty recruiting and retaining people, because they pay them uh, so badly. So I'd be very happy to see uh, money going into paying uh, our military personnel. But uh, the idea that we need to essentially invest in aligning our military forces with NATO, and that's what the government have been pushing us towards through PESCO. Mm. Uh, and it is why, to repeat, we had NATO military commanders in Cork last year assessing our troops for interoperability with NATO. And that's what the battle groups are about. And it is absolutely clear that NATO have been seeking to take advantage of what is an outrageous invasion mm. by Russia of Ukraine, but they have been seeking to take advantage of that to ramp up military spending right. uh, and NATO's influence in the European Union. Yeah, and let, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Barry Ward, yet we're, what we're hearing emerging now is that Donald Trump, obviously keen to get back into the White House, said three years ago to Ursula von der Leyen at Davos back in 2020, it's only just emerged uh, of late, NATO is dead and the US would never defend Europe if it was attacked. That maybe that's why this conversation is, you know, headed toward this idea of a European army because, you know, NATO may not, may, may not be around under, under a Trump regime. No, I don't think so. And even if the US were to leave NATO, which would substantially deplete it, an organisation of cooperation would still exist and a military alliance with those countries left in NATO will still exist. But I don't think this conversation is happening because of something Donald Trump said to Ursula von der Leyen three years ago. And what ago. about the conversation that was being had sort of at government level or certainly in the all about opening up a conversation about our neutrality and within yeah. that... Um, about, you know, potentially yeah. where we stand in relation to NATO membership. Well, I don't think anybody in the Irish 
in Irish politics is promoting membership of NATO. I'm not aware of that anyone is. But uh, there are lots of people saying we should have a conversation about neutrality, and they're right. Because one thing we know is that we don't all agree on what our neutrality is. <coughs> now, I'm very clear that we are militarily non-aligned, but we're not neutral. We're not neutral in Ukraine. We're not neutral in Gaza, for example. Um, so politically, we're not neutral. But militarily, we are non-aligned. But at the moment, we have a situation in law since the 60s, since the Defence Amendment Act, which doesn't allow us to deploy, make a decision about deploying our own troops abroad even in peacekeeping mm. missions, without going to other countries, which includes countries like China and Russia that can veto that decision. Yeah. So we don't even have the sovereign power to make that decision in the context of the triple lock. Oh, right. So it's absolutely right we should have a discussion about um, it. You know, what, what Richard had alluded to there about, you know, how, I guess, that the, the power of the European, European military spending is already quite great at the moment, Cahill. What would you say to that? That there's PESCO in place. Um, there is this rapid uh, response force, that commitment to establish that. And there have been uh, big increases in military spending. Is it all looking, you know, one way and that's towards increased militarisation? Um, so over the last 10 years, the trend was actually downwards. I mean, America was withdrawing all its troops from Europe. Um, there was very little investment in defence. Mm -hmm. But that has changed as a result of what... Russia did in, in Ukraine uh, almost two years ago now. So it's as a response to that, and the big controversy in Europe is not that they're spending too much on defence, it's that they don't have the capacity because they've wound it all down over the last 10 years. So this isn't being done voluntarily. Um, Europe is being forced into doing this because Putin will not stop until he stopped. And yeah, it's, it's, we do, I mean, I suppose on the greater picture about uh, arms spending and spending by countries and supporting and, you know, wars, um, certainly, you know, Europe has been at the forefront of that. Um, not really. I mean, they're only trying to scale up their, their production now, only in the last two years. But if I, if I can just... Yeah, but in the last two years. Yeah, and let's just remember that... It's right, that's what I'm talking about, in recent times. So we have seen a change in direction. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. out of necessity, unfortunately, because deterrence is a really important thing. We always look for the, the four Ds. It's democracy comes first to prevent um, conflict. Then it's diplomacy. And if they, if they fail, you move on to deterrence. And if deterrence fails, you move on to defence. So, unfortunately, this is the, the trajectory that Europe has been forced Okay, into. an unfortunate trajectory, uh, Richard? Well, let's not forget the thousands of lobbyists in Brussels from the arms companies who are constantly lobbying. They're the biggest lobby uh, in the European Union, constantly pressing governments to ramp up the level of expenditure to benefit the huge profits of... Uh, major arms companies. And to be honest, to my mind, that is far more of an influence in all of that, as well as the ambitions of some of the bigger states uh, to build up Europe as a military power. And when you look at the values or lack of values that some leading European states have displayed around the horror that we're witnessing uh, in Gaza, at, at Israel's hands, I think we seriously have to question whether we want to be in a closer military relationship with states that are willing to sell arms to Israel and to stand over its crimes in Gaza. And is that something, sorry, the Irish government are, are, are standing against, Barry? Or, you know, when we talk about having that neutrality debate, um, you know, what, what are we saying there if we want to, if we want to talk about also beefing up our defence and our security. Is it to be more aligned? I think defence is the important word European there rather countries. than, than militarisation, for example, because it's not about offensive weaponry. It's about defensive measures such as radar. So we actually know what's happening off our seaboard, for example. But I don't agree that lobbyists in Brussels have driven up defence spending 
fear has driven up defence spending in Europe. Countries like Poland and Romania and Finland that are right next to war zones are, of course, going to invest in their defensive capability. That's only natural. But cooperation is what Ireland's talking about. And that's a different thing. We should never be afraid of cooperating with our European neighbours. All right, there we will have to leave that for now. My thanks to Barry, to Richard and to Cahill. Coming up next, things are heating up stateside in the US election. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Donald Trump appeared in court today as closing arguments were heard in his New York civil trial. Here with the latest on this and the looming presidential primaries is University of Galway law lecturer Larry Donnelly. You're welcome along to the programme tonight, Larry. Um, let's start with Trump's court appearance. It's actually hard to keep up with the court appearances. Uh, this is his civil trial in New York. Remind us briefly again what it's about. It's about uh, fraud with respect to the valuation of his various properties in New York. And the reality is he, you know, there's $370 million potentially he faces uh, in fines in, at a civil level in this case. Uh, if he did, that obviously would be a substantial amount. In terms of his family's capacity to do business in New York, uh, it would cripple them. Now, we've seen Trump uh, employ the usual bravado he does in all of these proceedings. Uh, he even wanted to force his way and make a big statement today. Uh, he tried to say a few things. The judge cut him off. Um, the reality is I think the judge will, will come down pretty harsh. This was only the penalty phase. He's already been found liable. Uh, how much, how many millions is anybody's guess? But it will be appealed. And like everything else, Donald Trump will delay, obfuscate and push mm. this off as far as... I mean, can. how potentially damaging is it? Um, the Attorney General was asking the judge to fine Trump $370 million in relation to this. And as you say, he could be banned from doing business in New York. The impact of that on him as we're entering into the election cycle? Uh, on him personally and on his family, yeah, I think significant. Politically speaking, uh, I don't think it matters a damn, to be honest with you. I think people have made up their mind one way or another. Uh, either Donald Trump is a successful businessman who's the v victim uh, of a witch hunt, or he's not. He's actually somebody who just had a rich daddy uh, and has actually made a fool of himself uh, on the business place. So I don't think this will factor into the people's decision at all. OK, and he was... Uh keen potentially to talk today, but he, he didn't. No, he didn't. I mean, the judge wasn't keen. The judge wasn't keen for him to allow this to be, to be a total circus. Uh, we know Donald Trump loves to play the Mata, to persuade, to, to portray himself as somebody uh, who the system is up against. Uh, I do think there is a political point in that, however. I think the more he luxuriates in that victimhood, uh, I'm not so sure how well that plays. Perhaps Maybe his base eats that up, mm. but the people he's going to need to have on side to win the presidency again, I'm not so sure they like it all that much. All right, OK, so we, we may see what tack or spin he takes in the future because there are plenty of court cases, as we know. Um, now, there, were, there, were, there was a head-to-head, -head, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, now the only candidates opposing Trump, uh, and they, they went head-to-head -head last night. How did that fare for both of them? I don't think there was a winner or a loser. I think, you know, again, as with most of these debates where Trump hasn't appeared, uh, people say that Donald Trump was arguably the winner. But the big story here is the surge uh, of Nikki Haley. Uh, and if Nikki Haley manages to come second in the Iowa caucus, which happens uh, on Monday, then Ron DeSantis, the rationale for his candidacy to continue uh, is gone. And, and I think that that's entirely possible, both because of her own surge and also because of the withdrawal of Chris Christie from the campaign. Chris Christie, who was only polling at 3 or 4% uh, in Iowa, 
his supporters are going to migrate en masse uh, to Nikki Haley. And if she finishes second there, she becomes the story of the Iowa caucus, even though it could be a well behind Donald Trump. But she becomes the story. And then if we look at New Hampshire, where she's actually been polling quite strongly, and she will benefit more considerably there from Christie's withdrawal, you could see a situation where Nikki Haley actually is competitive with Donald Trump in New Hampshire. This is my next question. Does she actually pose a threat to him? Now, she remains the, a, a huge underdog. There's no question about that. But, and it's a big but, if she is able to run close in New Hampshire, this race will then turn to South Carolina, which, which Nikki, is Nikki Haley's native mm. state. She was governor there. And here's where, strangely, some listeners, some watchers will probably say, you know, why did Nikki Haley say slavery wasn't involved or a cause of the Civil War? Why is Donald Trump all of a sudden saying that the Civil War could have been resolved without a fight? The reality is that both from an offensive point of view, that's Nikki Haley, and a defensive point of view, uh, Donald Trump, they recognize that a considerable portion of the electorate in South Carolina think that the war, the Civil War was still a war of Northern aggression. Mm -hmm. They are positioning themselves already to try to win South Carolina because for Trump, South Carolina is either where he seals the deal or if Haley continues on, he's gonna, she's going to be a thorn in Donald Trump's side. All right. Um, look, the national picture has Biden and Trump tied um, at the outset. That's according to a Reuters Ipsos poll. Uh, how is the current president, sitting president Biden, you know, how is, is his re-election campaign uh, faring right now? Well, I mean, I suppose it depends on who you talk and who you talk to. I mean, the considerable concerns about his capacity both to campaign and then to govern, uh, they persist. Mm. We're not going to see much from Iowa and New Hampshire because the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, effectively canceled them. So. Okay, we'll have to see where that goes uh, for, from here. But thank you so much for joining us in studio, Larry, and thanks to all my guests tonight uh, from all the late team here. Good night and do take care. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.